there. This is Debbie Gershenowitz, Senior Editor at Cambridge University Press, and I'm here with my author, Kyle Longley, whose book, LBJ's 1968, is hot off the press, and Kyle and I are going to talk about the path that took him to write this book and what it means for us today. Um, so Kyle, happy to talk to you. Always a pleasure. And um, I would like to start off um, by talking about, um, you mentioned in your preface to the book that you have been a little obsessed with Johnson since you were youthful. You are a Texan just like LBJ is. And so I would love to know how your interest in LBJ um, that goes back to youth led it to write this book? Well, I think being raised uh, throughout Texas, uh, sort of, you know, you can't escape LBJ if you're from Texas, especially if you're from the central Texas area. I mean, there's LBJ Lake, there's LBJ Boulevard, there's the LBJ Library. I mean, anywhere you go, you're going to see the influence of LBJ and Lady Bird. Uh, so when I was a young boy, uh, not more than five or six, every time we'd go from my little town of Comfort, Texas, over to Austin, we'd pass by the ranch. So even as a young man, I was passing by history and didn't even realize it uh, really at the time. But over time, I kept coming back to these topics related to LBJ, especially Vietnam, where I studied under the eminent, uh, preeminent historian of the Vietnam War, George Herring at the University of Kentucky, to writing a biography of Senator Albert Gore Sr., who was a contemporary of President Johnson. So it just kept coming. It was circular. And again, being a Texan, I actually think pay some dividends because I have, think I have a better understanding of LBJ and the culture in which he was raised. And I think it helps explain some of the things like his crassness, uh, his populism, which undergirded all of his political uh, leanings. And so I thought that, uh, and I think it did make a difference in helping understand the uh, subject much better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would agree with you. So a lot of books have been written on LBJ, and a lot of books have been written about 1968. So what is unique about yours? And why did you choose to write about what LBJ called himself a year of continuous nightmare? Well, I think several things came to play. One was the advancing 50th anniversaries of the events that are covered in the book. Uh, ranging from the Pueblo through the assassinations of MLK and RFK, the Fortis Affair, the Chenault Affair, all these things that uh, really are even resonating today because of their historical legacies. And I, I love the endorsement that uh, Clay Risen from the New York Times gave the book. And he, he made the point, countless historians have picked apart 1968, but Kyle Longley is the first to go inside the head of the man who more than anyone else defined that year and with a style and precision that somehow makes the account of a terrible time a joy to read. To me, that's high praise, given that Clay has written on 1968 also. Uh, but I think it highlights, this is a book really that climbs inside of the head of LBJ, tries to present it from the perspective of the most powerful man in the world, and highlight the challenges as well as you know his reactions to this trying time. And I know that you did a lot of person-to-person -person interviews when you were preparing this book. So when you were talking to people who were right there alongside LBJ in 1968, like Joseph Califano, did they, uh, did they sort of go back to 1968 when you were interviewing them? And what were their memories like of that time 
as well as about how LBJ handled that time, which really, as your book shows, is just one crisis after another, just nonstop. Well, and I think, uh, you know, the people who I interviewed, including prominent members of the uh, administration that are still alive, like Joe Califano and Larry Temple and Jim Jones, uh, they all sort of, you know, remember it, too, as this year that this was never ending, uh, you know, quite trying. And, you know, they weren't sure the country wasn't just coming apart at the seams. And I think that's what you see among many Americans uh, uh, that remember 1968. This was a time when it appeared like we were on shaky ground. Uh, we weren't sure we were going to survive or the country was going to survive in the shape that it had for almost 200 years before. So I think that it was important. And, I, you know, I just received a phone call last Tuesday from Joe Califano just talking about how much he enjoyed the book, how it brought back so many memories. And the best uh, comment was I, he thought I got it right. So I think that is high praise from someone that was inside the White House at the time. Absolutely. You know, I was sort of smiling ruefully when you were talking about how um, how stressful and um, intense 1968 was when it felt like the country was coming apart at the seams because I don't know about you, but I wake up every day and feel much the same. Um, and so I'm struck by how relevant <coughs> this book is 50 years later, right now. Um, and we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of Johnson's decision not to run for re-election, which he made in a very dramatic and shocking speech on March 31st, 1968. Uh, we don't usually expect that from sitting presidents. So um, what are your thoughts? You know, I just keep thinking about... Um, today's president and how, like Johnson, um, Trump is dealing with crisis after crisis. What are some differences in the way these two leaders have handled them? And do you think Trump would ever make a speech like the one Johnson made on March 31st? And um, if so, what do you think it would take? And what, do you, what pushed Johnson to that limit? Well, let me start with Johnson. Uh, the decision was made on March 31st. I've got a wonderful chapter in the book. I think it's actually uh, one of my favorite, if my not my most favorite, uh, of chapters. And it's just looking at this one particular day and the, the tensions and the stress that had been brought out, mainly because of uh, race riots in the summer of 1967, but especially because of Vietnam. And just reaching that decision, and, you know, it was driven by his desire to try to figure out how to extricate the United States from Vietnam. And by feeling like if I, he stepped aside, he'd have nine more months to really try to make progress on that issue. And in doing so, he swept aside, you know, the th uh, arguments that it was a partisan uh, decision. He tried to appear like a statesman. And that, I think, stands out. Of course, there were selfish reasons for it. He worried about his own health. Uh, he walked by the Woodrow Wilson portrait uh, every time, and he would sit there and think, I don't want to end up like Woodrow Wilson, if having a stroke and being incapacitated in the White House and unable to perform my duties. And, you know, he had had a massive heart attack in 1955 where he almost died. So these things weighed on him. But he really was driven by this idea, I've got to stop this. This is the only way I'm ever going to defend my legacy and protect this wonderful legacy in some other areas like the Great Society, like civil rights, 
Uh, but Vietnam was the drag. Now, do I see this happening again today? Uh, probably not. I mean, Johnson did have precedent. Uh, Harry Truman had done the same thing in 1952, almost 16 years to the date. He did it on May, uh, March 29th, I believe. It may have been a little bit earlier. But he had made that decision of not to seek re-election, and Johnson had that as a precedent. And, of course, Clark Clifford had worked with uh, Harry Truman, and he was working alongside uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1968. But today, I don't see that. I don't see this as the same kind of precedent. One is Johnson was a skilled politician. He understood the political calculus. He didn't believe in chaos. If he'd had any decision, he would have avoided Vietnam and focused on domestic issues. Uh, but uh, the president sitting today doesn't seem to have that same kind of awareness. Uh, and he also, I think, lacks uh, the maturity that Johnson, and Johnson is a different man in 1968 than he is in 1963. I think he's learned some very hard lessons. He's been humbled to a large degree. Uh, but the president today just does not seem to have any kind of humility, any kind of understanding of any kind of political legacies. Uh, the only way he'll be uh, uh, removed is either through impeachment or he just one day decides to just quit for his own selfish purposes. Right. Uh, this was not Johnson's decision. Uh, he was done. He did this in many ways of selfless act on March 31st. Did he create the problem in many ways in Vietnam? Of course. But he did do, seek to try to extricate himself and try to find another option. And I think he performed fairly well in 1968, especially on foreign policy issues. Now, some of the domestic issues like the Fortis Affair, uh, the Democratic National Convention, uh, the book portrays him as selfish, uh, self-seeking are self-serving and contrast that to what many perceive of as his normal being. But I think the year shows a little bit more maturity than that. Mm -hmm. Do you think making that decision not to run again made the crises that would come after um, easier at all or different for him to contend with knowing that he didn't have an election on the line? I do in some ways. Uh, on the foreign policy issues, the one that's where I give him the most credit, outside of his handling on Vietnam still, which proves to be his Achilles heel through the election in 1968 with the Chenault affair, how he treats Hubert Humphrey over a platform uh, debate at the Chicago convention. But I do think it gave him some leeway. Now, it paid uh, it played against him in other ways. Uh, the Fortis affair, the Republicans decided to make an issue of him being a lamed up president with the and say that the next president should make the decision on who the Supreme Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, should be as well as a replacement for that Chief Justice. And there it paid a uh, play very much against him. And we hear much of the echoes of what we heard in the Garland Merritt mm -hmm. uh, debate just recently over a sitting president should not be able to make that decision when he's so close to the end of his presidency. So I think it cut both ways. Uh, and that's important to keep in mind. Do you think that if, if there were, we have about what, eight or nine crises in this book. You think there are any of those that he wished he would have handled differently? I'm asking you to be a revisionist now. Does anything come to mind? If he could have taken a different course, would he possibly done that? Well, I think the one that stands out to me, the one that he may have had the most guilt over on the long term, had he lived past 1973, uh, would have been the decision not to blow the whistle on the Nixon campaign's uh, interference in the Paris Peace Accords, where they work with uh, Anna Chenault 
to undermine the South Vietnamese uh, efforts to participate in those, which may have given them a breakthrough, which may have changed the outcome of the election. But Johnson chose not to make that public, arguing this was going to damage the presidency, especially as it appeared that Richard Nixon might win. But in the reality of it, that set the stage for later uh, Nixon uh, performing many of the acts that he did in terms of the Watergate affair. And so I think Johnson, had he lived long enough, would have uh, clearly stated that that was a regret. So what I want to go back a little bit to um, your process in writing the book. Uh, you did some interviews. You immersed yourself, I think, extensively into Johnson's personal papers. Um, what was your process like? And did you find that um, the memories um, that his former cabinet members had squared with what you found in the papers? Was it easy to piece these crises together or were there challenges or both? I think it was pretty easy to piece together. Uh, first of all, I didn't really approach the government documents until after I had studied the uh, numerous memoirs, including those of the president. And one of my most valuable resources, I think, was the Lady Bird's uh, diary, uh, which proved very effective in helping you sort of understand a day-by-day uh, unfolding of that in the, uh, you know, the lives of the Johnsons. And she was very close to him, uh, you know, one of his closest advisors. And so I worked through those and uh, memoirs by Califano and George Christian and many others before I approached the government documents uh, that exist in uh, a significant amount, both in the National Archives and the OBJ Library. So it was a fun process because this is written very much from the perspective of the president. And it's not written from the perspective of the State Department or the you know, attorney general's office. It's really trying to climb in the head of the president, portray the daily affairs, trying to under, underscore his personality and the effects that it had, uh, as well as those closest to him. And I think it gives it a personal touch that oftentimes you'll see in a book on 1968 or even his biographies where he gets lost in sort of the uh, weeds. And, you know, but I tried to keep this very central to this is about Lyndon Johnson uh, and the people closest to him, but especially about him and trying to make that argument that, you know, here is the most powerful man in the world, arguably, that struggles on a daily basis in 1968 with all these crises. And what he realizes over time is uh, he can only have a certain amount of effect. Uh, he continues to try to uh, affect things as much as he can, but he realizes the limitations of his power. Right. So Johnson, um, you know, he has such a larger than life presence and, and that, you know, continues down to this day. I think it's very easy for a lot of us to think we, we knew him um, just because he was such a, a big man in all ways. What did you find most surprising? Did you, did you learn new things about him? That surprised you? Yeah, I think what I learned most was the humanity of the man. Uh, we have caricatures of him uh, too often. You know, he's crass, he's craven, uh, he's selfish, uh, narcissistic, uh, but there also could be a side to him where he could show emotion in a positive way. And I think you see that in his uh, commiseration with the King family after the death of uh, Martin Luther King. I think you especially see it in his commiseration with the Kennedy family, not necessarily Bobby, who he hated with a passion. But what you see is his uh, concern for the family, especially the mother, uh, the wife, 
and you know tears being shed that you normally don't think of Lyndon Johnson ever shedding a tear. But I think you see this, and anything shows this, I think, in many ways, is look at the front cover of the book and where he's listening to Chuck Robb's uh, his son-in-law, who is in Vietnam, talking about the loss of lives among his troops. And that opening thing where he's got his head down on the desk, Kennedy's bust is in the background, and he's sitting there listening to that tape recording and how it's just tearing him apart. So I think developing the humanity of this man challenges many of the stereotypes and the caricatures of LBJ. And do many of those caricatures exist? Of course. But there is more of a human uh, man there than oftentimes is portrayed in many of the uh, studies. Yeah, I would agree. And I would just say, um, you know, that picture is so stunning. And, you know, it, if you don't realize who he's talking to, it still packs a punch because it is a, a picture showing him clearly distressed. But when you realize he is talking to his son-in-law about the war, which was pretty much his undoing, it's just heartbreaking. Um, and the, the book is full of incredible illustrations, and many of them are also um, of him and his grandson. I don't know if that was, um, I forgot whose child that was, but I know that we that did was Lucy's. Lucy's child. So, so Chuck, yeah. Chuck Robb's son. No, it would have been uh, Lucy. Uh, Linda was uh, Chuck Robb's ah, wife. Okay. And she was pregnant while he was in Vietnam. So she was four or five months pregnant when that he's listening to that tape recording, ah. not sure if Chuck is going to make it home. Right, right. Wow. Well, I know that we had, we had spoken a little bit about possibly putting a picture of Johnson and his grandson on the cover, um, which I ultimately nixed because I, I thought it was almost too happy for a book like this. But right. but I, I think you're right. These pictures show the, the truly genuine joy and probably relief that he had being able to be at the ranch with his son. And, and one thing that I really like about this book is I would say probably half of it, as much of it is takes place in the ranch back in Texas, yeah. as it does in Washington. So um, do you want to speak a little bit about that? You know, I mean, Obama went to Hawaii, you know, Trump goes down to Mar-a-Lago, you know, what, what did the ranch, and again, sort of going back to where we started, Texas and that place say about him as a person and a president and as a crisis manager through this terrible year? Well, I think if you've ever visited the ranch, the first thing you walk away from is, it's not palatial by any stretch of the imagination. It's quite ordinary. And I think, you know, when you juxtapose that against looking at like the Kennedy compound uh, and the family and the differences in the wealth that existed between the two families, it helps you understand the difference between John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, but he felt more at home uh, in Texas, of course. I, I, I don't see why that wouldn't be the case. Uh, he could be out with his cattle. He could be out driving. And the people there still saw him as Lyndon. He wasn't President Johnson. He was Lyndon. Uh, so there was a little bit more, probably more humility built into that than what he was where they, people were kowtowing to him in D.C., which they had done for many years when he was the arguably the most powerful Senate majority leader in the history of the United States. So I think he relaxed there. I think he thought better there. I think he had people around him that kept him a little more grounded. But it also is just who he is. Again, everything you would need really know about him, go visit Central Texas. You want to understand the populist nature of Central Texas politics. It's important to do that because grounding 
having a grounding in that explains a lot about Johnson as opposed to just saying, well, he's a liberal. Uh, no, he's not a Northeastern liberal. He's a populist progressive out of that Texas mold uh, that had existed for 60 years before he ever became president. And it fundamentally shaped him and his family. And that ranch is just a symbol of that. And again, what you will notice is just how modest it is uh, in many ways. Uh, I think when people walk through, they're going to go, well, where's, you know, the fancy uh, living rooms and things like that. It, it, again, it's very modest by uh, most contemporary standards. So I think that's important to keep in mind, as well as sort of the political culture of that region for better explaining who he is and why he does what he does. What Any other comments that you want to make on this? Was there anything particularly challenging in um, writing this? You know, I know for me personally, I mean, I love Johnson. Um, warts and all, he's my favorite president. But I have to say, while I was reading this, there are parts of it that hurt. You know, I mean, sort of the, the I wanted him to do things differently. I, I was frustrated with him. His star sort of fell, and then it always rose again, often when I would see this humility that you just spoke about. But w w was any of this hard to reconcile some of these hard decisions he made, um, some things that maybe you wished he would have done differently? Well, of course I wish he would have done a lot of things differently, uh, looking in hindsight being the uh, Monday morning quarterback. Uh, how he handled the Fortis affair was uh, particularly poor. How he handled his relationship with Hubert Humphrey, I think, uh, was particularly poor. I wish he would have done a better job how he tried to manipulate the Democratic National Convention in Chicago instead of letting Humphrey and others uh, take and sort of create their own. It created a lot of the problems that resulted in the riots in the streets and uh, the challenges there related to the Vietnam War plank. So I think, yes, but, you know, I think that's what makes him such a fascinating character. Mm -hmm. He's complex. I mean, I don't have a lot of love for Richard Nixon, but I can argue he's an extremely complex character. And the thing about Johnson is he gives you so much good material to work with. I mean, this is a larger-than-life character. Uh, and a man, as you said, with warts, uh, who accomplished a lot of very good things, but also was brought down by his own vanity, uh, his own inability to admit he was wrong, uh, which a lot of politicians uh, suffer from. But Johnson and the, and I think the Johnson part too that is strengthened is someone asked me the other day, do I think Johnson will hang on as far as an important political figure? And the answer is unequivocally yes. And the reason I say that is I think Vietnam in the 1960s are not going to fade from our memory. And if anything, they will enter sort of the historical pantheon of the Civil War, uh, the Revolution, World War II as important decades and important uh, transition times in American history. And that's not going to change anytime soon that people are going to lose interest in that. Yes, I completely agree. And, and I, I do, I, I was struck by what you were saying. You know, I mean, you, you, you might not admire a president. I, I think you and I share our our political sympathies are on the same um, line. You know, I'm no fan of John of Nixon, but I remember reading as a grad student Six Crises and about these six crises that Richard Nixon had to face um, while president. And it gave me a tremendous appreciation for him that I didn't know I had. I think I shocked my parents when I <laughs> told them how impressed I was. And, and I do think that this points to an interesting way um, to study presidents and other leaders by looking at how they handle crises. I think, you know, we still are pretty tied to 
the great man narrative. And um, I think you've paved a really interesting way. And I, I hope future journalists and scholars um, will follow this. I think it does unfold the complexity of people who are presented very much in a single manner. Right. But caricature is easy. Yes. Uh, it's yes. easy to conform uh, to that caricature. It's hard to do the nuance and the uh, complexity of people. But I think this book does go a long way in presenting a much more complicated and complex understanding of Lyndon Johnson than sometimes exists, especially in our popular culture. I, I agree. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll wrap this up by saying um, that it, it really also shows this incredible group of people who he was with. Again, I'm, I, I keep thinking about the current day and I'm thinking about this sort of, you know, a rotating cast of characters that um, allegiances change. It seems like it's sort of hard to build community. And one thing that really becomes apparent on the pages um, are how close these advisors and friends and family members to Johnson were. They often didn't agree with him. There are some very colorful passages in the book um, where Johnson is, you know, basically saying, what in the world? Um, but in different terms. Um, yes. But you really get a strong sense of um, that there was a real cadre here. Um, and I can't imagine doing that job with, without that. And, and I, I think we've lost a lot of that, um, not just with the current president, but in um, in recent years, as the, the position of the president becomes more and more of a personality and a person, and you know that you forget that they're part of a community. And this book really reminds us that it's not just one person. No, it's not. Again, I, as I said, I think the most valuable resource was reading Lady Bird's diaries, which if anyone gets a chance, if they want to understand the Johnson presidency, read her diaries is just a good starting point. I could talk Johnson and I could certainly talk to you forever, but I think our time is winding down. Any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Well, I think the uh, final one is just looking at the importance of 1968, comparing and contrasting it to 2018 on issues like race relations. We're still dealing with the North Koreans, which I talk about in the book about the Pueblo affair. There's a lot of commonalities there. Uh, the Supreme Court nominations, foreign interference in our elections. All this, uh, almost every topic resonates with today. And I think that's important to keep in mind. It makes it much more valuable as a book for understanding even our own contemporary issues. Well said. And um, with that, I think everybody should um, hold on to this book as um, a look into what happened and, and how relevant it is for today and hopefully serve as a guide for all of us. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs>